Thanks, Eddie. Well, gentlemen, how about we pray uh, that God might give us understanding of his word. Lord God, we ask now that as uh, we turn to your word, you would open our hearts and minds to understand. We ask, please, through your spirit, you might do that. We pray that I might speak clearly and truthfully, and we ask all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, it's nice to see that uh, some of you came back from last night. Uh, We might have a few new guys here as well. I just want to say... You said some fairly hard things last night, but I'm not trying to, not trying to beat you up or um, make you feel guilty. Actually, the great thing about the Christian message is we're not in the guilt business, uh, we're in the forgiveness business, okay? We, you know, people take care of guilt on their, on their own, it's, it's Jesus is all on about forgiveness. And what we're talking about as we turn to the book of Ephesians is that if you're a man who wants to follow Jesus, if you have Jesus as your Lord and Master, then... Uh, the Spirit of God is already at work in you, working to make you like Jesus. And last night we spent some time going through the beginning of Ephesians, chapter 1, 2, 3, and half of 4, showing what it is that God has done for the follower of Jesus, for the, the Christian man. And then from 4, verse 17, what does it look like to live that out? What's the practical implications of living out the Christian faith? So we started at 4.17 and we worked our way through tonight. I'm going to pick it up from um, chapter 5, verse 15. Now let me begin by, I'll just tell you a story, something I remember very clearly. It's 30 years ago. I remember I was uh, 23 years old. I just made the big decision that I was going to um, give, up, give up my job in the business world and go into Christian work. And it yeah, was a big decision. So I remember walking in, uh, I was working for uh, Berger Paints at the time. I remember walking into my boss's office and um, my boss was new, kind of the boss had been changed in terms of who I reported to. And I walked in, I remember his name was Brian and he was a very hard-edged businessman. He was a one hard man. I remember saying to him, Brian, I'm going to uh, uh, resign my job. I want to give five weeks notice. Uh, I'm going to go and do uh, Christian work at, uh, at the university and maybe kind of go into Christian ministry. And he paused, looked at me, he didn't say anything for maybe 10, 20 seconds. It's a very long time. You're like... And he looked at me and he said, well, when you're dead, you're dead for a long time. So you better do what you want to do. And he walked out of the office. That's all he said. But I remember that because he's dead right, isn't he? When you're dead, you're dead for a long time. So you better do what you want to do. And that is what the Apostle Paul says in 5 verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. What does it mean to be wise? Uh, Verse 16 Understand the days are evil. Verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. You see in verse 16, um, where it says, make the best use of time. Literally what he says is, uh, redeem the time or or buy back the time. Meaning what? Time Time is valuable. And think about it because the days are evil. What does he mean? Um, Well, as he wrote then, I think he'd say the same now, the days are evil. You know, I, I live in a nation, I, I love, you know, the big island to the west, I love it. 
And yet it's a nation that has just turned their backs on God wholesale. A nation where there's kind of a huge onslaught against Christian belief and Christian values. And what breaks my heart even more, that onslaught comes from outside the church and from within the institutional church as well. Days are evil, so be, be wise in how you use your time. So gentlemen, how long do you think you've got left? How long, what's a reasonable expectation of how long you've, you've got left? Like, at your funeral, let's, ha- let's actually, you know, at your funeral, who would, who would you hope would be there? And let's have the novel idea that maybe they'd tell the truth, okay? That'd be a novel idea at a funeral, wouldn't it? Uh, and what would people say about your life? I remember I did a funeral as a young minister just out of college. I did a funeral in the western suburbs of Sydney and I, I went and saw this... Uh, this sweet old lady, um, and her husband had died. Oh, I hadn't been retired too long. I guess he's around the age of 70. And I said, would you like to say something at the funeral? Oh, no, I couldn't. I'd be too upset. Okay, I'll say, you tell me what to say. What can you say about your husband? Well, he was a postman. That's good. My family worked at the post office too. Uh, and uh, he, he liked to play cards at the Blacktown Workers Club. Good. And... And that was it. I couldn't get... His whole life, he liked to play cards with his mates at the workers' club and that... Or when you get to the end of your life, what would you like to be able to say that you poured your life into? I'll tell you some things that people never say on their deathbed. No one ever said, I wish I watched more TV. There's one man I know who'd be in his mid-70s now, retired early, and for the last 20 years, pretty much all he's done is watch television. Or you younger guys, I want to let you off, you younger guys. There's 11.5 million people around the world playing World of Warcraft computer game. Not one of them on their deathbed will say, I wish I'd spent more time playing World of Warcraft or whatever computer game it is. No one ever said, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. No one ever said, I wish I'd been a bit more selfish. But I reckon a lot of blokes will say, I wish I'd poured more time into the people I loved. You want to leave a legacy? Money or a house or, I don't know, you want to leave a legacy? Invest time in people because you understand eternity is coming. Redeem the time. And that's see things and see, it changes what has real value. You know, um, in 2002, I, I left the church I was working at and I started a job with the, uh, the youth and children's ministry arm of the, the Anglican Church over in Sydney called Youth Works. Uh, and it was a great job that I got to do. We were involved in running camps for kids and there was a Bible college and a publishing, uh, publishing house and so on. It was great. And uh, they looked after me too. I got a car park in the city. And that was all big and I was really excited and so on. But you know, as I look from the, from the view of much later and from the view of eternity, there was, there was one thing that was so much more important than all the others and I didn't even realise it at the time. It was kind of just, it just happened. Well, God made it happen. And that was, coincidentally, my son went to school in the same building that I worked in. And God arranged it that I drove that boy to school every day for four and a half, five years, right through high school. 
And each day as we, uh, you know, we played the AM, FM game with the radio or sometimes he just fell asleep or occasionally we got to really talk to each other and I knew what was going on in his life. And two or three blocks before we'd drive into the car park, I'd say to him, what are we going to pray about today, mate? And he'd tell me. And then I'd pull over and we'd pray. And at the end I'd pray, please God, give us your wisdom today that we might live a life that honours the Lord Jesus. And in hindsight... That's absolutely the most important thing that happened in those years because God has answered that prayer with that boy who's a young man now. Who are you going to invest your life in? Now, gentlemen, I'm not, I'm not flogging you to work harder. Truly, I'm not. I'm just saying we need, to, we need to think about what's really important. That's what the Apostle Paul's saying. Think about what's really important. Who will you spend time with? Who is it that needs to hear the message of Jesus and how could that happen? If you're Jesus man and you have a family, you are their pastor and shepherd. That's what Jesus expects. Do you pray with your kids? Do you have a routine where you read the Bible with your family? You know, you can fit it in at the end of a meal, breakfast or dinner. Like we used to do after dinner, dinner finished and we would read the Bible. Little tip, if you've got dessert coming, read it between main course and dessert. It still gives you some leverage with the kids, okay? Um, uh, that, That works. Or if you're an older man, are you meeting with, encouraging, looking after the younger men and kind of walking with them through the various stages of life? Um... What's he say? See verse 17, understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, understand what really matters to Jesus because the days are evil. And the time is short. You see, then uh, the Apostle Paul moves on to um, uh, to talk about well, to talk about wine. Actually, wine is uh, wine is the good gift of God to be enjoyed. Psalm 104 says, God makes the plants of the field grow. Um, Psalm 104, verse 15, uh, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. On the top of his head too, if you're lucky. They wine to gladden the heart of man. It's a good gift of God. Enjoy it. And I, uh, I love a drink. I do. I love um, Carlton Cold. I don't know if you can get that in New Zealand, but uh, just a frosty cold Carlton Cold, beautiful. I like white wine. I don't really like the really punch-in-the-mouth reds, but I like Merlot. It's, uh, it's beautiful. I love that. I know it's a little bit poncy, but I like those Coronas, a little tall Mexican kind of pale with a slice of lime in the top, and that's, that's beautiful. And when you cook a barbecue, you just, your hand just kind of bends into that shape to hold a beer, I reckon. It just barbecue and a beer, beautiful. goes together. I like it. A little bit too much. And I found myself having one and then thinking a second one would be nice and have two and then, well, three would be good. And, and I wasn't getting drunk really, but, but just getting a little bit too fond of it. And then I did that sum, the nine out of 11 that I just talked about that's gone on the tape. And I realise as a personality, I don't do moderation. And so I've stopped. I've stopped. And you know what? I don't miss it at all. 
In fact, I haven't missed it for five months, 11, uh, sorry, I haven't missed it for six years. Now, wait a minute, I'll get it right. I wrote it down, actually. I'll, work it, I'll tell you to the day. Five years, 11 months, and one week, I haven't missed it for. Uh, all right? Sure, I miss it. But I don't control it properly, and it will control me if I let it. And I am not, trust me, I am not making a rule for you. Did you hear me say, wine, beer, it's the good gift of a good God. But a good God also tells us how to control it. And there is a line. And what's the line? The line is self-control. And God says, do not cross the line of self-control because when you do, you damage yourself and you damage other people. And the damage in my country is incredible. Alcohol is destroying the indigenous communities uh, around Australia, or so many indigenous communities around Australia, in the Northern Territory and so on. It is just an absolute disaster what's happening. Domestic violence is rife all over the place. Violence on our streets at particular times. Road accidents, drowning, health problems and, and so on. And on and on it goes. And why is it as a good God who says, wait, stop, the line is self-control. You see 5 verse 18, he says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. It destroys relationships, it damages it. But be filled with the Spirit. Um, what Spirit? He means the Spirit of God. Enjoy the good gift of God if you can control it, absolutely. I have trouble, so I don't. Now, what's the difference between the two spirits? Grog removes self-control. The Spirit of God, one of the fruit of the Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. And here's the thing, what's real freedom? Real freedom is self-control, because who's in control then? You are, okay? You are. And why does God say don't get drunk? Oh, getting drunk has got to be just harmless fun, isn't it? No, it's not. I tell you something, getting drunk is antisocial. And if you've ever spent time with drunks, and I have, who is the only one that thinks a drunk is funny, clever, entertaining? I tell you the only one, the drunk himself. So let us be self-controlled, gentlemen, and enjoy the good gift of God if we can. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You see, uh, he says, okay, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Um, and then the word filled, in the way that the sentence works, filled is the, is the main verb, the imperative. Do this. It's like be filled. In other words, really, you've actually got to, it's cooperate with God as he fills you with his Spirit. And then there's five commands or five actions or the technical term is participles, but it's all right. But the five commands or actions that kind of flow out of that, you see. Be filled with the Spirit, and then uh, you'll be, verse eight, as verse 19 continues, it'll be about addressing or speaking, singing, making melody, giving thanks and submitting. Okay, let me, let me read, um, I'll read the two verses together, 18 and 19. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, um, giving thanks and so on. Let's talk about um, singing and, uh, and Christian meetings and so on. Uh, it mightn't happen very often at men's convention, talking about that, but here we are, here it is in the scriptures. Um, I'm the least musical person that I've ever met, 
I can't sing and clap at the same time. I, I try, but I, I just get the singing right and then try to clap and then I can't read the words. So from the least musical person, here's a few thoughts. First is this. Worship is a whole of life thing. When the New Testament talks about worship, it means all of life given in service to God. So calling singing worship is kind of, yeah, it's technically correct, but it can be a bit misleading because it gives the impression that singing is somehow the high point of worshipping God, which it's not, it's an important part. And so I just kind of, I call it singing. Secondly, we actually need content as we sing. It's about teaching and encouraging one another. Um, Colossians chapter 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Actually teaching, admonishing, correcting one another. So you need content. And what does that mean? It's great to see songs with content sung here. It's not just kind of, you know, endless choruses, la, 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 repeated again and again, or, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend, he can be yours too, which is, yeah, don't want to sing that. You know, uh, tell you what I'm a little bit concerned about back in Australia. Uh, we've got musos, some musos are just a little bit too clever. And what I've seen happen is we've gone from congregational singing to congregations, groups of Christians standing watching the band perform. And you can have sound systems that are so loud you can't tell whether you're singing or not. And we, we want congregational singing and sometimes the music's too complicated for, you know, musical um, dunces like me. And it just, we want musicians who are humble enough to help us sing rather than show us what great musicians they are. Now, why is singing so important? The non-Christian world generally doesn't sing unless they're drunk. Um, English football crowds do, but in Australia, and I gather here, football crowds don't sing. Uh, the non-Christian world listens to music and headphones, but no one sings. In Islam, there's no singing. Why is it that Christians sing? Because we have something to sing about. We have something to sing about. Uh, why sing? Why the music? Uh, what it does, what, the, what music does is actually, as, as you sing, it links the truths of the faith with memory and emotion. Right? And I can remember, I can still remember songs that I learned 30 years ago when I first became a Christian. Right? It links it with memory and emotion. And it, it can be very powerful. Uh, I remember, Kathy and I, if you are here last night, remember, I remember, you may remember I talked about um, St. Catherine's Monastery and the monks and so on there on Mount Sinai. Well, that morning we'd climbed up to the top of, well, what they tell us is the mountain that Moses was on. There's a number of mountains in the, in the region. It could have been the one that, Mount, that Moses got the Ten Commandments on. And I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, there might be some kind of, forgive the expression, some kind of spiritual experience to be there and so on at sunrise. And uh, I was pretty cranky and disappointed because it was just a bunch of buffhead tourists. And uh, the top of the mountain, I guess, is similar size to this auditorium. And there are a couple of hundred people and they're fooling around and videotaping and just generally being gooses. And I was just background middle-aged grumpy, uh, as I've said before. And, I, yeah, I was. I was really cranky. These idiots just... And then, as the sun came up, 
from somewhere on the mountain, not that I could see, just down a little below us, but somewhere close, I actually heard a dozen, maybe 15 Asian voices. And I, I couldn't understand the words. I think it was Korean, but I got the tune. And I'll have a go at it, right? It was, and the tune was da 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 O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the world thy hand has made, and on they went, and I knew the words, and I could sing, and there I am standing on Mount Sinai about how great thou art as Asian voices sing the praises of the God of Moses because Jesus had, wow. And I, I got it straight through, grabs the heart, and you remember, and that's why it's so powerful. And the pictures of heaven in the Revelation, what are they doing? They are singing. And so we need to be men who sing. Why? Because we have something to sing about. To sing as men who have the Spirit, to be thankful. Now, that's a difference, isn't it? That, that, that's a big difference where I come from. To being thankful, see, um, verse 20, giving thanks always um, for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being thankful is the opposite of whinging, which is our national pastime over there. Uh, and being thankful is a great sign of the work of the Spirit in your life. And then the third one we get to, um, submitting to one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And then what you see, the way that Paul's written the letter is, uh, he talks about submitting and then, then he, he shows how that submitting to one another works itself out in a series of relationships. So you've got um, husband and wife, parents and children, and slaves and masters. Now I'm hoping that we'll get to uh, husband and wife, parents and children, won't get to slaves and masters tonight, I think we'll just run out of time. Okay. So he talks about submitting, uh, and if you want to stir up some people about something, talk about submission. Verse 22, it really does look like he's saying wives should submit to their husbands, doesn't it? And the reason it looks like that is because that is exactly what he's saying. All right? 522, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, um, why is that? It seems so countercultural, so much against our culture. You think, well, I mean, really, you can't take it seriously these days because what Paul is doing is just kind of taking their ancient culture and just kind of, you know, putting it onto our 21st century culture. And like 21st century, we've got our act together, haven't we, of course? Well, first thing to say is this Paul is not uh, just following ancient culture. In fact, uh, he's absolutely against most of what ancient, the ancient Greco-Roman world was about in the way they treated women. Rodney Stark, uh, yep, uh, American academic, I don't think he's a Christian, or I, I'm not sure, I don't, he's certainly not an evangelical Christian as far as I can work out. He's written a book called The Rise of Christianity. The second half of that book is absolutely brilliant about how Christianity went from just a few thousand people to kind of sweep over the Roman Empire and why. What he says in this book is that in the ancient world, say in Rome, in Italy, in the Greco-Roman world, there was a huge differential between the number of men and the number of women. In Italy, first century Rome, that kind of era, era 
140 men to 100 women. Why? Uh, because they exposed or killed baby girls. Families usually didn't raise more than one baby girl, they just exposed them to die. Or women died because of forced abortions and it killed mother and child. Listen to what uh, Stark says about the way that women were treated in Athens in the ancient world. You know, Athens, the seat of democracy and so on, and Stark says this. In Athens, women were relative... So in Athens, women were in relatively short supply owing to female infanticide, right, the killing of baby girls, practiced by all classes and in addition the deaths caused by abortion. The status of Athenian women was very low. Girls received little or no education. Typically, Athenian females were married at puberty and often before. Under Athenian law, a woman was classified as a child regardless of age and therefore was the legal property of some man at all stages in her life. Males could divorce by simply ordering a wife out of the household. Moreover, if a woman was seduced or raped, her husband was legally compelled to divorce her. If a woman wanted a divorce, she had to have her father or some other man bring her case before a judge. Finally, Athenian women could own property, but control of the property was always vested in a male to whom she belonged. And and one of the reasons that the Christian faith grew so quickly is because they loved and respected and treated women properly. And women flocked to join the Christian church. They didn't kill their babies, they didn't abort their babies, and so their birth rates were high, and the Christians treated women differently to the ancient world. The Bible will always critique a culture, and the Bible critiques 21st century culture. I mean, we've really got our act together, haven't we? Well, you ever heard the expression, man drought? Is that in New Zealand? You've got all these women who want to get married and blokes who don't want to commit. Well, this is just one of the problems today. And why is it that men don't want to commit? Here, I'll give you, I've got 10 reasons here. That These are from the USA, but they're the same across the Western world. Why is it that men don't want to commit in terms of getting married? Here we go. Men can get sex without marriage more easily than in times past. Two, men can enjoy the benefits of having a wife by cohabitating rather than marrying. Three, men want to avoid divorce and its financial risks. Four, men want to wait until they're older to have children. This is simply a justification not to think about this. Five, men fear that marriage will require too many changes or compromises to their current lifestyle. Um, Six, men, men are waiting for their soulmate to show up in their life, but she's not yet appeared. Seven, today, there are fewer social pressures to marry. For example, having children outside of marriage is no longer stigmatised. Eight, men are reluctant to marry a woman who already has children. Nine, men want to own a house, develop their career before they get a wife. Ten, men want to enjoy the single life as long as they can. Look, to put uh, clearly and simply what I tell the girls, it's not politically correct, but it's accurate. Blokes are selfish, and you're not going to buy the cow if you're already drinking the milk for free. Okay, that's the problem. Actually, we might edit that out of the tape later. Um, <laughs> all right. Do you know what? In Australia, we are so screwed up about the way that we treat our women that on November 25, we now have White Ribbon Day. Um, here's their website. I mean, it's a, it's a good cause, November 25, and basically it's saying... There's a thing where they invite you to, li- to swear an oath and, and to list it on the website. And here's the oath. I swear never to commit, excuse or remain silent about violence against women. This is my oath. 
and they've got all sorts of high-profile people who've, uh, who've blokes who've sworn the oath. And what do they say? Violence against women in Australia affects us all. One in three Australian women over the age of 15, one in three reports having experienced physical or sexual violence. Uh, they say it costs $13 billion a year and so on. Family violence is the major cause of homelessness among women and children and is a major contributor to mental illness and substance abuse. Now, it's a good cause, but you know what? How screwed up is a society where you have to have a website and an advertising campaign to say to men not to beat up on women? As if the 21st century's got it worked out. The Bible critiques every culture. Richard, can you just turn off the uh, phone? I have to blow my nose. I'm going to break some eardrums here. Thank you. Let's have a quick, a quick think. How does Ephesians chapter 5, what it says about marriage, how do we kind of put that? Uh, the Bible says lots about marriage, and marriage is in some ways built into the framework of the Bible. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 2, you get the picture of this. The first human relationship shown is about, is about marriage. Um, God, makes the, God makes the woman for the man. He doesn't make another man. He makes someone who is different. Literally, it's saying kind of someone in front and opposite him, someone like him but different, someone complementary who will be with him and so on. Um, Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, and so that's the picture. What does it say? A man will leave his father and mother uh, and, cl- and, and hold fast to his wife. It'll be public. Everyone sees that. It'll be lifelong together and they will become one flesh in terms of the, the sexual union. And a sexual union produces children, yes, but in Genesis 2, the children aren't on view. It's about intimacy and love and joy and so on. And if you've read Genesis, you know, in just the very next chapter... The man and the woman, or should I say the woman and then the man, decide that they can't truly trust that God is good and wise and that they'll do their own thing and believe the lie of the devil and then selfishness and sin enter our world and every relationship is damaged and that most intimate and special relationship is profoundly damaged. And marriage becomes a battleground where she desires to control him the way that sin desires to control Cain in the next chapter and he will rule over her and it becomes an arm wrestle and Ephesians 5 is all about putting back together marriage in the Christian context Ephesians 5 gives you God's pattern for Christian marriage okay now how do you um uh how do you understand submission Um, what does it mean to be submissive now some people will say ah okay what it means is mutual submission so submit to one another means uh, then uh, wives submit to husbands and so on that the husband and the wife submit to each other now I've heard that said uh, and it's wrong Um, notice in the text the husband's never told to submit to the wife wife submit to husband Husbands have to do something else, okay? But also, it doesn't work in terms of the meaning of the word. The Greek word for submission here, hupotasso, means to rank yourself under someone else. 
and it's used in the context, say, of, uh, of the military, the idea of ranking yourself under uh, an officer who has a different job to you. You rank yourself under a, um, a superior officer. And it's used in a number of different relationships. So, for example, it's used of the way that God the Son, Jesus Christ, submits to his Father. Okay, so submission is found within the Trinity. Christ is submissive to God. It's used in 1 Peter 5, the way that younger men are to be submissive to older men. Okay, they they choose to do this. It's used in the way that in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says that citizens should be submissive to the government. Now, the mutual submission thing just doesn't make sense. Okay, it's not... It's not kind of we're equal and who goes through the door first. What, what I mean is we have different roles. We rank ourselves differently. So, for example, um, in verse 24, submit the way that the church submits to Christ. Nowhere does it say that Christ submits to the church. Older men are never told to submit to younger men. And the Roman governor doesn't submit to the individual citizen. Now, have a look, 522, wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Women are called on to be submissive to their husbands. And by the way, gentlemen, if you're married, don't throw your hat in the air yet. You wait till you see what we're supposed to do, okay? But wives, what's submission? Submission is her chosen. She chooses to do this as an adult, right? She's not talked to as a... It's not obedience in the way that kids are told to do. She chooses to willingly submit, willingly follow his headship and I'll say a little more about what headship is later she her willing response to his headship why because he's cleverer better whatever no but out of reverence for the Lord verse 21 right as to the Lord and notice too it says to your own husband it doesn't tell every woman to be submissive to every man okay to your own husband and so what's the analogy verse 23 he says okay Wives, submit to your husbands out of reverence for the Lord. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, head means authority. But in the Bible, authority means, comes with the idea of, yes, you use that authority, yes, but it's your job to serve and love and care for. Authority the way that Jesus uses his authority. And the husband's the head of the wife, um, uh, It's not that women are inferior at all. In 1 Corinthians 11, God the Son is submissive to God the Father and yet they are both fully and equally God. There's nothing to do with inferiority, it's different roles. And so if you want to say, oh, submission's bad or if she submitted, she's inferior, you've just actually upset the whole doctrine of the Trinity. And Paul deliberately grounds it uh, in the Trinity in 1 Corinthians 11. Different role not inferior. So look at um, 5.24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, you say that at a wedding and you've got a cat fight in your hands. Uh, <laughs> unless you've chosen the guest list very carefully. So, sure enough, I did a wedding a while ago and I get the three-page handwritten letter I always hate it when I get these letters. Like, you get the long handwritten letter, and as I open it, I think, all oh, right. It doesn't take them three pages to say, you're doing a great job, Al, okay? I know it's coming. Here we go. I wish to express my anger at the vows taken by, I'll 
put in um, different names to uh, protect the innocent. Um, I wish to express my anger at the vows taken by Jane at their wedding last Saturday. I particularly objected to the concept of Jane submitting to Bob. I feel that for any person to submit to another in marriage is inappropriate and particularly in this case given Bob's personality. Bob would be the meat... Bob would be the meekest, mildest, gentlest kind of bloke that you'd ever meet. Anyway, if the vows, are, sorry, if these vows are the products of talks between yourself and the young couple, I feel the church has erred in its role of advice on the role of people in marriage. If this is the official line of the church, then it is, is it any wonder people don't go to church or believe in the teachings of the church? It is particularly telling that people don't get married in church. I am glad I don't go to your church. Lady, that makes two of us. Um, (laughs) As I I cannot see how anyone, male or female, could endorse the principle of submission in Australian society, I hold the church responsible and guided... um, uh, sorry, to hold the church to be responsible and guiding, not divisive and manipulated. You're manipulating, yours sincerely, etc. Now, I, I can see why she's fired up. I did write back to her and say she didn't have a problem with me, she had a problem with God and she might like to think about that. Um, anyway, what are you going to say? I figured I, was off the, I figured I was off the Christmas card list anyway. Um, ah, how do you make sense of it? Because see, as soon as you say submit, people say, oh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if he's an idiot? Or what if he's a serial killer? Or, or what if he's not a Christian? Or what if he's... Or, oh, yeah, okay, all right, he can be the head... But I'll be the neck, all right? That kind of just moves him around. Now look, if you actually trust God that God is good and wise, this is God's pattern for marriage. And I, I know and I have known women who have been in really difficult marriages with men that they, they couldn't really submit to in the way they were treated and so on. But what it's, you start with God's good pattern and then God has also given principles to work through when sin is really so much involved that, that maybe it's just not possible for this to work or happen. But you've got to actually embrace God's good pattern and understand it and deal with the cases of sin uh, and how you deal with that according to other parts of Scripture. So what's, what's going on here? Okay. Note, women are addressed as equal partners and responsible adults. And here's the thing, gentlemen. Men are not told to make their wives submit. You got that? Paul doesn't say, men, make your wife submit. He doesn't do that, does he? He says to the women as responsible adults, ladies or wives, be submissive to your husbands. It's their willing decision. And I've got to say, over watching over decades, women generally do a much better job of submitting than men do of being a godly husband, generally. And men can respond to this in three three wrong ways. One is to be the kind of the dominating pig and take advantage of it. The other is to kind of just, no, 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 it's all too hard, disengage and go out to the shed. Or the other one is to kind of, you know, roll over like a puppy and want your belly scratched and just let her lead. Okay, let me try and give you a summary of what it means and then we'll go on to what the man's got to do. A A man is given headship in his marriage and family. But what does that mean? What it means really is the authority, yes, but even more the responsibility to love and care and look after her, to lead and love his family and, 
And his aim should be to, that it's an absolute pleasure for her to agree to be led, for her submission to be a joy as she follows him. And submission is her willing response to his loving, sacrificial, careful leadership. Now, isn't that a beautiful pattern? Okay. Now, if you're not married and you, and you want to be, here's the thing to think about. Will you love a woman the way we're about to come to? Will you love this woman? So, you, you know, you're going to meet the girl, you're going to go out, or you've, you've been going out with someone for a little while, or whatever it is, or you want to get married. Are you prepared to love a woman in this way? Because what does it say? It says that men, you don't have to submit to your wives. You just got to love them the way that, you ready for it? Jesus loved his church. All right? Um, what's the analogy? See verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Do you see the way it works? It's wives... Uh, submit to your husbands, yes, the way that the church submits to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives the way that Jesus loved the church. He, what did he do? He gave himself up for her. He gave his life for her. So the analogy that runs through the New Testament, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom and his church is talked about as his bride. The picture of heaven, uh, Revelation 19, is the great wedding, you know, of, of Jesus and his bride. And what does he do? He gives his life for her so that she can be forgiven and, and, and so on. He lays down his life for her. Now, if you're married or thinking about getting married or being married, could you imagine giving your life for your wife? You know what? I reckon most blokes would. It was interesting that, I don't know how much you heard about it in, um, in New Zealand, but in 1996 at Port Arthur in Tasmania, Martin Bryant walked into the Broad Arrow Cafe with a, um, a Mini 14 um, 223 carbine and, and began to shoot people. And he shot something like 36 people. And there were quite a number of men who stood up, who pushed their family under the table, who saved the lives of their wives and took a bullet for their wife. They just did it instinctively. Now, it's unlikely that you'll have to stand, you probably would, but it's unlikely that you would have to, that you'll have to stand up and take a bullet for her. But will you help her with the dishes? That's more likely. Will you um, change a nappy? Here's a big one. Will you go and visit her mother with her? And even bigger... Will you do it without complaining? And even bigger, will you do it without acting like a martyr? I'm, I'm working on the last one, okay? <laughs> um, will you listen to her? And I mean, will you turn the TV off and look at her and actually listen to her? Will you back her up? when a teenage boy needs to be put in his place and learn a lesson about treating his mother with respect. Jesus loved his church, his people, so they could be pure and holy. Do you see verse 27? Why? So that he might present the church, his, his people, his bride, uh, to himself in splendor, 
um, without spot or wrinkle or any, other, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And you see, we've got to love our wives that way. Our aim should be that our wives are there at the last day uh, and, and will be, be presented pure and holy. And so it's, the great, it's a great challenge to me to think, is my lovely girl, is she following Jesus more closely because she's living with me? And the way I'm treating her, is that helping her to walk more cl- closely with Jesus and to be more godly and be beautiful and holy and so on? And I know for some of us, uh, we, we may well be married to ladies who aren't Christian. You know, maybe, maybe you've both got married and you weren't and then you've become a Christian and your wife hasn't yet and that, that can be really hard. But the question I ask is, is my wife more likely to listen to Jesus because of how I treat her? Because see, gentlemen, loving your wife is actually loving yourself. See verse 28? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Remember back in Genesis, it says that they became one flesh. As you love her, you're actually loving your own flesh. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So as you care for your wife, you're actually loving your own flesh. And then he quotes Genesis 2, verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So it's a little bit hard to wrap your head around. What, What he's actually saying is, the, the real capital M marriage, because marriage is about intimacy and love and commitment and faithfulness, the real capital M marriage is about Jesus and his church. And the marriage between man and woman is just kind of little m marriage. That's just a little picture of the big M reality, which is Christ and his people, which is all about love, commitment, faithfulness. And then you get a summary in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Sorry, just have a little bit of throat trouble. What I'd, what I'd like to do, that summary is brilliant and I'd like to share with you just a few things I've learned lately about kind of the, the marriage thing. I've been, I've been married for 32 years and uh, I've got a long way to go but I have just learned a few things and uh, there's a couple of books I've read that have been really useful and you do want blokes to go home from these kind of nights thinking, yeah, okay, I've got a few things I can actually go and really work on so let me share these things with you. You look at verse 33 and it's very carefully written. See what Paul says, uh, what God says through Paul, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Do you notice that what's expected of each cup of each each member of the marriage, the man and the woman, is different. So the roles of the man and the woman are not interchangeable. Why? Because what a man needs and what a woman needs are not the same. It's not the same. See what's it say? Let a wife what? Respect her husband. Now, the word for respect, phobeo, it can mean fear or it can mean awe, as in A-W-E, okay, awe. 
So I guess you could translate it, let a wife think her husband is awesome. Um, but those of us who have been married for more than a few weeks know, well, we'll settle for respect, okay? That's probably as good as we're going to get. Uh, all right. Now, what's it mean? It means more than anything, a bloke wants to be respected. A bloke wants to be respected. That's the most thing. Okay? Um, you think, well, wait a minute, what's the difference between respect and love? There is a difference, isn't there? You think about it. You can, you can love your four-year-old, but you don't respect him in that way. Or you can respect your boss, but you don't love him necessarily. They're, they're different things. What's a man want? A man wants to be respected or taken seriously. A man wants to be treated like he matters. Uh, isn't that exactly what the Scripture says? A wife should respect her husband. Um, now, you notice, gentlemen, we're not told to make her respect us, but we could probably get busy and, and make it easier for her to respect us in how we act. But the flip side, and let me talk about what the man's told to do. See verse 33, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Um, the Greek word there, love, agape, it's the same word as for how God treats us in Jesus. Agape, love. We're to love her. Now, let me show you a book here. Um, if you're taking notes, this book, how are we going there, Tim? Uh, excellent. Okay. I've, <laughs> this is the best thing I've read on marriage. Now, I've had lots of marriage books read to me, usually kind of ladish at night while I'm trying to go to sleep, but hey, listen to this. And I've, but anyway, uh, maybe you've had marriage books read to you too. But this one, Love and Respect by Emerson Egregious. Egregious, E-G-G-E-R-I-C-H, love and respect. And the subtext is the love she most desires and the respect he desperately needs. It's, it's a very clever book. Um, why? Because it actually unpacks what 5 verse 33 says about love and respect. Now, he talks about in there about uh, ways in which you can actually show uh, love for your wife. And uh, let me just really, really quickly, he talks about, he's got an acronym, uh, COUPLE, uh, C-O-U-P-L-E. He just quickly talks about, okay, you want to think through how do I really show that I love my wife and the way that women think, things like this. He says, okay, closeness, C for closeness. She wants you to be close to her. Um, she wants you engaged with her, time with her, do things with her. She wants to be with you. The next one, O for openness. She, she wants you to open up to her. Part of the reason, he talks about the part of the reason women want to get close to you. So sometimes when they're confronting you and they're kind of in your face, what they want is, is to engage with you. And sometimes it comes across as them fighting and blokes don't know how to fight with a woman. It's kind of really, you don't, and so blokes withdraw and she chases you. And it's kind of like, leave me alone and she's in your face and they want to um, engage. They want you to open up. Now, sometimes that's really hard for blokes. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember meeting with a young guy who was a, was a ministry trainee, and um, he said to me, I'll change the names to protect the innocent. He said to me, Al, um, you know I'm marrying Debbie, and she's, uh, she's a social worker. I said, yeah. He said, well, now that we're engaged, she, she wants me to share my deeper feelings with her. I said, oh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds pretty fair. You're engaged? He said, yeah, but I don't think I have any. Um, <laughs> I said, ah, oh, mate, fake it. Do your best. All right? Anyway, they're happily married, four kids. It's sweet. Okay. Um, 
Next one is you for understanding. And this is, now this is a strange one. Okay, he says, what the girls want is that you understand the problem, that you listen to them, but they don't necessarily want you to fix it. Now, I, I just don't get it. I don't know. Okay, just take my word for it. It's like giving them flowers. I don't know why it works, but it does. Okay, um, listen, you don't have to fix it. Next one, peacemaking. They want you to say, I'm sorry. Um, next one, I'm just going to zip through these. Uh, loyalty. She, she wants to know that you're committed to her and that you'll be involved in things that are important to her. And one of the important things to the girls is loyalty with our thoughts and our eyes. Who and what you look at really matters to the girls. She wants to be your special girl. And the last one, esteem. She wants to know that you honour and cherish her, that you will speak positively about her to other people, that you value her, that you remember important dates like birthdays and that sort of thing. I always wondered why birthdays were such a big deal for the girls. And I read the book and then realised, actually, if we gave birth, birthdays would probably be important to us too. So it's a, it's a big thing for them. Okay. All right. That's the sort of thing. Now, just really quickly, she wants to be cherished. But how is it you set out to, to love your wife? How, how do you do that? Well, if you're taking notes, write down 1 Peter 3 verse 7, where Peter says this. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an, in an understanding way, is how the translation goes. But what he literally says is this. Um, husbands, live with your wives according to knowledge. You, you need to know her. You need to know her. Now, at one level, you know, it, it, it's hard to work out the girls and the way they think and so on. But, but let me tell you about a book or an idea. It's just, there's gold, all right? Okay. Um, there's a guy called Gary Chapman who wrote this book, The Five Love Languages. Now, that's got to be the prettiest title I've, uh, cover I've ever seen on a book, all right? But it's a good book. Uh, and what he says is this. There's, um, so take this or leave this. I don't think this is in the Bible, but I think it's practical wisdom, okay? He says this. He gives five different ways that people receive love. And not everyone, people have one or two, but people receive love in different ways. So there's words of affirmation. That means positive, encouraging words, physical touch, quality time, acts of service, and gifts. And if you're, what he's saying is, if you're trying to show someone love in a way that they don't really receive it, they won't get it. So, for example, my son, uh, one of his love languages, is a great kid, one of his love languages is gifts. He just loves presents. In fact, he buys himself presents all the time. He orders stuff on the internet. It's always arriving at, at our place. He lives somewhere else and they arrive presents that he buys for himself and other people and loves giving them and getting them. Unfortunately for my Kathy, presents mean zero. If her love language was gifts, I could just get on the net, buy a few things, get them delivered. How cool would that be, right? It just, zoom, happened. No, 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 no. For Kathy, gifts and words of affirmation, talk is cheap, nothing. For Kathy, if I want to show her I love her, it's time, because she knows that's the thing that's most precious to me, time and acts of service. So what does that mean? It means I can buy her a gift, nah. I can offer to take her out for dinner, no. Nah. Really want to connect with her? You pick up the lead, you get the dog, and then the three of us go for a walk. And while we walk, one of us talks and two of us listen. 
and I don't have a magic dog, okay? All right, you got it though? It's just an hour's walk with the dog. It doesn't cost anything, but actually it does. It costs me time, which is the most precious thing. And take her out for dinner? Nah, do the dishes after dinner at home. I'm husband of the year. Now, gentlemen, that list, it, you know, it's not from Mount Sinai, but I'll tell you what, it's, it's, it's clever. What's your wife's love language? You work that out and put that into effect, you will be rewarded in many ways. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to pull the plug now. I had a whole lot of, I'll ramble on all night about parenting and kids. And uh, you, you might have to read Ephesians chapter four, uh, sorry, chapter six, verses one to four, and think about that. Um, I, I'm going to pull up now. In fact, what I'll do is hand over to James, who might organize some time that uh, we may want to think and pray uh, in response to that. You know, I think I, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs>